The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I'd like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we are going to be talking to a counselor, and this is Monica Dunlap. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. No doubt. So I've done a super brief intro right there, Monica, but please tell people a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm a licensed professional counselor. I work in private practice right now. I have a history in both drug and alcohol rehabs and working with youth that have been in trouble with the law or, you know, children, youth, things like that. I hear that. How did you get into this field? So um, I was in a lot of trouble as a kid. I was in juvenile detention centers. I was in group homes, things like that. And when I went to school, I had no clue what I was doing. And I took a psychology class and it just kind of made sense. Everything that I had been through, I understood what children were going through that are in these situations. And I just wanted to help and just kind of led me down that path. I hear that. Can you tell me a little bit more about your childhood and growing up? Because I'm always curious to know how people got to where they are and what they're doing now, as much as you're, of course, willing and comfortable to share. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, pretty normal childhood until I was, I'd say, about 13. And my grades started to slip. I started to have a lot of issues with my parents. And there was a lot going on. I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, but children and youth were involved with my family and eventually ended up taking me out of my home and putting me into, again, juvenile detention centers, group homes, lockdown facilities, 
a whole host of places for about two years. And how, how did that, how did that come about? Was that from an outside organization or was that from the family side? So it's a little hazy, um, kind of when that stuff happens, kind of block it out in my particular situation, children and youth came into my home and there was, you know, leading up to this, there was a lot of issues with custody and things like that. And children and youth came into my home and I'm not sure why they were there on that particular day, but they ended up pressing charges against me because the children youth worker was like in my face, laid her hands on me and I pushed her away. And mm-hmm. I think we'll talk about this more. Um, this happens to kids a lot, but that was kind of their excuse to press charges, give me a felony, put me in a de- detention center, and then down this path of being in these lockdown facilities. When you say children and youth, I'm not familiar with that. Is <clears throat> that an, what is that? So it's different in different states. They call it different things. It's the system, basically. So mm. it's usually people are more familiar with the foster care system, but the system is not just foster care. They also can place you in different facilities. So basically, it's when the parents give up their rights or their rights are taken, they're put in the children and youth system. Does that make sense? Okay. So, okay, got it. So that's like a government organization or group that handles that at a, at a state level, something like that? Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Got it. Got it. And when you talk about lockdown facilities, what does that, what does that mean? I'm not even from, super familiar with the term. Yeah, so it varies. Um, it's been in the news a lot lately because Paris Hilton has started to speak out about the abuse that goes on in these places and the lack of any sort of actual help for children. So um, there's a few different types of facilities. I'll just speak about, you know, what I'm familiar with. So the place I was at, the first place was a detention center, which is locked down, no sunlight, no outside, like it's jail. It was in the first floor of an adult jail. Mm. And it's the same thing as jail. And then from there, there's different facilities such as um, residential treatment facilities, wilderness programs, things like that. It's basically called the troubled teen industry. So it can range anywhere from a kid having a mild issue such as truancy, bad grades, or anything to, you know, stealing a car, things like that. Parents can send their kids to these places themselves without children and youth involvement for things like coming out as homosexual, being sexually active, not agreeing with their parents' religion, things like that, because ultimately parents have autonomy to send their kids anywhere that they choose. Mm. Yeah. So the way, I mean, I think it's good for the listeners to know the way this podcast came about was I was talking about who I should speak to on my podcast and you said that you'd like to talk about the troubled teen industry. And that was yes. a term that was a term I'd never even heard of before until you mentioned it. I'd, I'd never even heard that phrase. And I was like, what's the what's that about? And you sent me a DM, sent me some links and some info. And I was like, oh, wow, this is something that if I'm not aware of it, there must be millions and millions of people out there who aren't aware of it at all. 
So how many children are even in these facilities, these different types of facilities? How big is the scale of this? So annually, there's at maximum about 200,000 children in the U.S. alone in these facilities at any given time. It ranges, obviously, but that's typically the average per year. Mm -hmm. And tell me more about your actual experience with this. How long were you in this for? What was it actually like? So I was in there for about two years. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of research on other people's experiences. And some of them were a lot worse than mine. Mine was bad. It was it was really bad. And while I was in there, I couldn't imagine it being worse. So it's appalling to learn what actually goes on. So first of all, I think that I have to start out by saying that these places are typically staffed by kids as young as 21 years old, who a lot of them don't have any sort of credentials. And if they do, it's like a psychology degree. And I'm not sure if you're familiar what it with what it takes to get a psychology degree, but you're not learning about trauma. You're not learning about crisis. You're not learning how to handle behavior issues. You're learning things like how memory works, stuff like that. Like it's all light and fluffy things to get you to the next step to a higher degree. Mm -hmm. But at these places, they're so short staffed, they'll take anybody to work there. So picture a bunch of, you know, 16, 17 year olds with 21 year olds in charge. Are you familiar with the Stanford prison experiment? Very yeah. much so. So basically what happens, you give people power and they abuse that power, especially if they're not properly trained, not properly educated. So a lot goes on at these places. There's sexual abuse, physical abuse. The mental abuse is, I mean, it's just crazy the things that they do and the things that I saw go on there. And, you know, even if, even if it's not the staff doing it, it's the other kids. Because mm. think about at nighttime, you have staff, they're working overnights, a lot of them fall asleep, and the kids know what's going on. So they're, you know, sexually abusing each other, physical assault, things like that. That sounds that sounds crazy. I mean, what's a what's a typical day in there like? I mean, how is the time even spent? So it depends on where you are. Um, some of these labor camps, because the whole idea of, of these facilities is tough love. Okay. So I guess I should start. So the foundation of it was actually a cult. This guy had addiction problems and he decided to start his own facility. And he would use what was called attack therapy, where you would mm -hmm. take people's weaknesses and you would use it against them. You basically berate them. You would break them down in order to build them back up. But life doesn't work that way, especially when you're a little kid. So there's a lot of everything's punishment. And from a psychological perspective, from a research perspective, punishment doesn't work. It teaches kids to hide things. It doesn't produce morality. It produces politeness. So you have these kids that are not learning how to behave they're just being berated into behaving a certain way so um, some of these places are built on labor all day intensive labor and some are just very very structured but 
structure is good. A little bit of structure is good. Kids need that. Kids thrive on it. But then I think there comes a point where it's too much. So the place I was at in particular, we weren't allowed to talk to each other most of the day. We had a point system. That's how most of them are run. You have a point system. If you miss the place I was at, if you miss more than 10 points a day, you had to sit and face the wall the whole next day and you weren't allowed to talk to anybody. You could also be put into solitary confinement, which is the same as what would happen in an adult prison. You're in a concrete room. There's no windows. There's no communication with the outside world. And if you know anything about solitary confinement, you can lose your mind. You just lose your sense of reality. So it gets very extreme. For the point system, if you missed more than a certain amount of points in one week, the whole next week you would sit and face the wall. Now, any infraction that you have, you could that would continue. So there were kids I was in there with for three months straight sitting facing the wall, not allowed to talk to each other. Wow. And what happens is they tell the parents and they market these things as though there's therapy, there's groups, there's doctors, there's all kinds of things that just don't happen. And so they also tell the parents that their children are manipulative. They tell you right off the bat, if your child calls you and says, I'm being abused, they're manipulating you because they want to come home. Mm -hmm. But they need this. And this is the only way to save them. So it all comes down to, you know, kids don't have the same rights as adults. And I don't know where this idea came from that kids know how to manipulate, but in the children youth industry, that's a word you hear all the time, manipulation, manipulation, manipulation. And also a lot of these places, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping all around, it's a lot of information. That's okay. A lot of these places are in the middle of nowhere, so no one can check in on them. And when you first get to them, they have different level systems, so... When you first get there and you're on level one, you're not allowed to call anybody. You're not allowed to call your parents, not allowed to call anybody. And for the whole entire time that you're in there, you're only allowed to call your parents, no friends, nobody. So let's say your parents are part of the abuse that you're experiencing. You can't, there's no one you can tell. Mm -hmm. You can make reports, but who's taking the reports? The staff that work there who don't want to lose their job, who don't want to throw their coworkers under the bus. So it's just a hot mess and there's no checks and balances. There's no regulations. It wasn't until 2008 that there was a law enacted that you're not allowed to abuse children in these facilities and that there need to be some regulations. But there's so many loopholes that who can, who can really check in on these things? Yeah. It, it, this, is so, this is so weird for me because it's rare for me to come across something at this scale, which I've been completely honestly oblivious about that mm -hmm. doesn't happen all that often. So I'm just kind of taking this all in, like how on earth has this been going on at that scale? You said about 200,000 children just in the USA at any one time. Yep. You're basically talking about, I mean, it's sounding like a, not just an adult prison, but a, a pretty harsh adult prison. I mean, putting people it's in worse. solitary confinement. And yeah, I mean, it almost, the hard things with these type of subjects is they almost sound like 
they almost sound unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like, wait, how can that be happening in the USA? And that's not all over the news. That's not the biggest subject. People are not talking about this. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about the, the history of these. So you mentioned that this was started by a cult. I, I think this is, this is Synanon you're referring yes. to, which I'm sure some people might be familiar with that going back some decades. So can you tell me a little bit more about the origins of this whole industry? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of where it started. This guy, he started this group and it was supposed to help people. He helped himself get off of drugs and alcohol and he started going to AA meetings and he started, you know, and if, if you're familiar with the model of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, you all go around and you share and you maybe talk for like a minute or two. And then it goes to the next person. This guy was going to these meetings and talking for two hours and like developed this following. And eventually, you know, they weren't having that. They're like, you can't come in our meetings and take over. So he started his own program. Mm -hmm. And this guy, you know, he had no credentials. This was, I don't even, I don't even know when this was. I think it was like 50s or 60s. Late 50s, and, believe, yeah. yeah. And he would just do all kinds of crazy things, forcing abortions, forcing vasectomies. And, you know, couples were coming in there to get help and he would force them to get with different partners, just completely deranged things. And people started adopting these models for these youth programs. And youth programs originally started off of orphanages but then what do you do with the kids that are in trouble and no one wants them and things like that? They can't get into the foster care system. Nobody wants teenagers. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for teenagers to get placed in a foster home. So if you have a family that cannot take care of their kid, but they have nowhere to go, they end up in group homes and things like that. So this model was taken and the idea is to, you know, if you've ever seen this show Scared Straight, that's, that's kind of their idea. Like scare these kids into being a certain way, being a robot basically, so that they can quote unquote function in society. But that's not what, you know, the developing brain can't handle that. Mm-hmm. So it's basically, you know, abuse these children into being who they want to be. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I know for myself, I went in there and I was a shell of myself. I put my head down. I did what they said because I was terrified because the threat was you'll be here until you're 18. You'll be here till you're, you know, if, if you're still doing things and, and it's not anything crazy. It would be if you took more than a 10 minute shower, if you or five minute shower, you got one day a week, 10 minute shower to shave your legs. If you took a five minute shower and you went over by 30 seconds, you lost all your points for the day and you're sitting facing the wall. So it was these little tiny things that if you didn't follow the rules perfectly, they would threaten you with a higher level than what you were already experiencing. So in the aspect of getting a kid to temporarily change their behavior, yeah, it absolutely worked. And their parents would think, oh yeah, they must be getting help because all of a sudden they're not acting out. But it wasn't actually help. And some of these kids are there because they have anxiety, depression, maybe they're cutting, eating disorders, things like that. They're not 
actually bad kids. They're not criminals. And they're placed in there with kids that maybe do have some level of criminal behavior. But even if that's the case, where's this starting? Mm -hmm. Why is a kid that way? Nine times out of 10, there's something, there's an issue with the family. It's just a piece of the pie. And there's other people involved. So the kid's the target, you know, and I know that you have brought up single families a lot or single Mm -hmm. parents. Lack of both parents can cause a lot of issues. So you have a kid from a single parent home, their young parent doesn't know what to do with them. They're acting out, they go to this place and then they're completely abused and punished. And it's not that they chose that path. That's kind of the hand that they were dealt. The environment that they were in created that behavior. Yeah. So in your experience, so were you in this one single facility for two years straight or this was going to lots of different facilities and programs? How can you walk us through that? Yeah, I was in multiple facilities. Um, So I was in first started with a juvenile detention center because I did have charges I had a probation officer, and that's where she placed me. I was there for, I think, the first time, three months, and the second time, like, six months. And this was all one long stretch, though. I was kind of back and forth. And what happens, and I'm not sure if this still happens today because this was all all the way back in 2001, they would use juvenile detention centers as shelters when the shelters were full. So even Mm -hmm. if you didn't do anything wrong – they were putting you in there if you had nowhere to go. Got it. And so I was in a juvenile detention center. And then I was in what's called a residential treatment facility, which is supposed to help kids with, you know, mental health issues, behavioral issues, things like that. And then I was in a lockdown facility. I'm not sure what the technical term for that was, but it was basically juvie. But you're in like a little house and the doors all lock and everything, but you're not in a jail cell. You're in like a cabin and you sleep in a room with like 12 other people. So it just really, it was the same. It just looked a little different. Mm -hmm. And what was the process of coming out of this all? What do you mean? As in like, how do you get out? Yeah. I mean, what was, how long do most young people stay in this? And in for yourself specifically, how, what was the, what was the end of this, of this process? So this is a loaded question because there's multiple ways it happens. So if you go in there because your parents voluntarily send you there, they can take you out. But like I said, that's very rare because they tell your parents right off the bat that your kid's going to manipulate you. So I think it all depends on your relationship with your parent. Some of them you cannot get out because If you're like me, I was a warden of the state. So the state had custody of me. My parents did not. So I was under their rule of thumb. I had to go to court hearings. So every three months they would have a court hearing. So when I first came to this facility that I was at the longest, I was told that I would be there for three months. If I followed all the rules and I got through the level system, they have a level system that's based on the points that I was talking about. If I got through the level system, that I would be released in 90 days. Well, this is another thing that's completely messed up. And I've heard from 
you know, now I have friends that work in the children and youth system and I have friends that work in the juvenile justice system and I've heard the behind the scenes. And what happens is when you have a kid that's not so, that is well behaved, let's say, in these places, a lot of times they will fight to keep them in because they're getting, this is a $23 billion industry. Whoa. Yeah. They're making $23 billion a year, 90%, which is Medicare, Medicaid, and um, state-funded programs, grants, federal, local, all that funded. So it's it's a moneymaker. So you have a kid- 23 billion a year. Billion, yeah. So if you have a kid that's not really a behavioral problem anymore and they're in there, the you know, they kind of fight to keep them in because that's a bed that's taken up. That's $500 a day that a kid is in there. And so I think that's kind of what happened with me. I'm not saying I was a perfect kid, but when I went in there, I, like I said, I kept my head down. I followed all the rules and they would do some really weird things. Like for example, I was on the level system and I think there was like four or five levels. I was on the highest level or no, the second highest level. And they would say to me, they would say, we know that you're being manipulative because when you came in here, we were told that you have all these behavioral issues and now you're faking it because you're doing everything you're supposed to. And we think you're just faking it to get out of here. So we can't move you up to the fifth level, which is where you usually get released because we haven't seen the real you. So then what would happen? You have a kid, you know, I'm at the time I was 16 years old at this particular place. I was there from 15 to 17, almost right before my 18th birthday. Okay. So they would say, you know, you're, you're faking it and you need to stay here longer. And I'd have, you know, I'd be working my butt off trying to behave, just thinking, I just want to get back to school and my friends and be normal. And then they would, you know, tell me this. And I remember one particular time I had followed all the rules. I was there for six, six months at this point. I had gone to two court hearings where I was told I was going home and then told I had to come back for no reason. I hadn't acted out. And I remember crying when I got back and I, we had like a, you had a piece of duct tape in every room and you had to say, can I cross? And if you cross that piece of duct tape without asking you would lose 10 points again 10 points you're on the privilege whatever it is and you sit and face the wall the whole next week Mm -hmm. so I was extremely upset and I tried to walk to my room before I like you know threw something or whatever and I didn't ask if I could cross it didn't even cross my mind I was so upset and I got tackled because they use restraints there. I don't think I mentioned wow, that. Wow, okay. If you're doing anything that, you know, there, there's all these rules that they're supposed to follow to restrain you. But they don't follow them. These are 21-year-old kids. And they threw me down on the ground and they basically strangled me. I couldn't breathe. And so what do you do? Fight or flight? I started fighting back. And that resulted in me you know, after six months of hard work, putting me back on level one, starting all over. And I was just, 
at that point, you know, I, I was crushed. I had given up and, um, it's just crazy to think about now because, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but a lot of kids, you know, the, res- the recidivism rate is 80%, 70 to 80%. That what that word means is kids in the system get put back in. Mm-hmm. And if it's not when they're a youth, it's when they're an adult. And it boggles my mind that I was able to get out of that because pretty much everyone I was in there with couldn't. Because you just start to lose, you lose touch with reality when you're told these are the rules, this is what you do, this is how you get out, and then that's not followed, and you're, you know, physically abused and things like that by these people that you're supposed to trust, that your parents are trusting. It's just, you know, how do you deal with that as a as a child? And I, you know, I was older, you know, I was there from 15 to almost 18. You have kids in there that are 11 years old. Wow. It's, it's horrific. It's horrific. Um, it's so odd to me that this is not, I mean, I'm glad we're doing this podcast because hopefully we can, we can certainly raise the, um, level of awareness to this, at least to, at least to my, my listeners, but I find it so bizarre and shocking that number one, people don't know about this. I guess number one, that it's going on. And then number two, that people, people don't know about it. Um, how is it kept so, how is it kept so under wraps? There's millions of reasons. I was just watching an interview the other day with a staff member from a place that was, has all these people speaking out against. And he was, you know, that condescending voice people use when you know that they're full of it. That's how he was talking. (laughs) Yeah. And he was just like, that's not true. Mm -hmm. These, these kids are, you know, they're, they're bad. You tell people, I think that teenagers are one of the most misunderstood, ignored, um, populations. People just, people get annoyed with them because they're moody and all these things. And if you put a teenager in the wrong hands, it gets pathologized. So you could have a teenager in one family who has an attitude and the family rolls their eyes and makes a joke and they move on. You could have a family with an authoritarian parent who's a tyrant and their kid gets an attitude and their parents shipping them off, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of what happens. And so I think that there's just so many people that just sweep what happens to teenagers under the rug and it's easier for them to just wash their hands of them. I had a friend that worked in the children youth facility and I was talking to him about this recently about how, you know, younger kids such as five years old, they could be in a home and they're getting abused, neglected. Children youth will come in that house multiple times and never take the kid away. Yep. And then you have teenagers and it's so easy most of the time, as soon as CYS gets involved, they send them out because it's cheaper for them. They don't have the resources to deal with it. And that's another reason why kids get sent to this facility. Kids that actually need help, maybe something simple as counseling because their insurance doesn't cover it, but they know that. So I don't know if this is how it is in other states, but in Pennsylvania, there's a loophole. You could be a millionaire 
But if your child has a mental health diagnosis, they can get put on medical assistance, which is okay. the government insurance, health insurance. And so medical assistance provides and covers much ha- higher level of care in the mental health system than your regular private insurance. So a lot of these parents are told, hey, you know, we know you can't afford help for your kid, but if you sign this paper, we can get you medical assistance and then they can go get this treatment. So sometimes it's well-meaning parents who think like, I don't know how else to help my kid. And this sounds like a great thing. You know, they're going to be in a safe place and they're going to get therapy all day. And that doesn't happen. There's no, the place I was at, it was marketed as a treatment facility mm-hmm. for help, you know, for behavioral and mental health issues and things like that. There was no therapy. I found a letter. I have a folder of all this. My dad like documented everything and I kept a folder And there was a folder that I had written a letter home to my dad. And I said, you know, I know they're telling you that there's therapists here, but my therapist saw me for five minutes in the past six months and wrote it down as though she saw me an hour a week and just so many lies. And I don't even know how that letter made it home because that's another thing. They check your mail. So any mail that comes in or out, they open it and they read it. So you can't even write a letter and say, hey, I'm getting abused because they're going to rip that letter up and it's not going to get sent home. So like, it, again, it's it's with kids, there's no checks and balances. How much contact did you have with your parents during this time? Um, it just depended on where I was at. At the juvenile detention facility, you're allowed to make collect calls. So... I think we had like one a week that we were allowed to make to our families. Um, Again, someone's listening on the other line. So you can't really say what you need to. And at the residential treatment facility, if I remember correctly, the first few weeks, you were not allowed to contact them. And then after that, it was based on the level system, how many phone calls you got. And they were typically 10 minute phone calls. And then if you were in trouble, the whole facing the wall thing. They called that privilege. If you were on privilege, then I think you would only get like a five minute phone call a week. And if someone doesn't answer too bad and you're only allowed to use the phone at a certain time. So it was just very strange. Is calling it privilege some type of sick ironic joke or? Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. I think back to, I'm like, did I really have that name? Right. That's dark. Yeah. That's dark. Yeah, it is. So what were those calls with your parents like? Um, I don't want to get too much into my family, like my personal okay. situation, just because, you know, I don't want to. I understand. I understand. You know, I don't but wanna, you know, if, if, they if, definitely, if you know. they definitely were victim to your child is manipulating you. Yes. And so it was very hard for me. I think a lot of times I was so like. I just still to this day feel so blessed because there was, they did have to allow you to call clergy and my best friend was the pastor's daughter. So you were not allowed to have anyone visit, but the pastor of your church or your parents. Okay. He would drive four hours to see me. And that was like, 
I think I was the only kid in there that had somebody like that in my life that wasn't in my family. And, you know, he didn't know how to advocate for me or anything, but like just that connection to the outside world and someone that cared about me, you know what I mean? And sometimes if the staff wasn't listening, I could talk to his daughter. So like I did, you know, get to talk to a friend, but um, yeah, you know, back to the original question, it was, it was strain on my family. I mean, even my grandma, I found a letter from her where she was like, we just want the best for you because originally children youth was, were trying to find me family to be placed with. And I had an uncle who wanted to take custody of me and my parents fought it because again, like the system was telling them your kid's bad. She needs help. So, um, that's a shame too, because I think I just needed a different environment. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, doing drugs, stealing cars. I wasn't doing anything that was honestly to this day. I look back because it makes you feel like you're so bad. They make you feel like you're the worst person in the world. I still struggle with that sometimes. Like I'm always looking over my shoulder, like, did I do something wrong? Cause you feel like everything that you do is considered bad in these places. I mean, like I'm saying, you go a minute over your shower, they're screaming at you. Mm-hmm. They're tackling you on the floor if you don't ask if you can go to a different room. So you get this complex that you're just innately evil. And for myself, you know, now as an adult and working in the system, I see that I was a normal teenager who had a little bit of an attitude, who didn't like doing my schoolwork. And had some chaos going on in my family that I just couldn't really deal with. And I think if I had been placed in a different environment, like living with my uncle, I think I would have been okay. In fact, I stayed with him for about a week and it was the best week of my life, you know? So was that during, was that during the, sometime during this two week stretch? That was, that was before I went away. It was like a couple weeks before I got taken out home, which is another thing that I didn't mention that I think is absolutely horrifying. They kidnap kids out of their home. So you don't know that you're leaving. In my case, they came in in the middle of the day. They took me out. I, I think I had a shirt on, like I had been sleeping and they dragged me out of the house in front of all my neighbors. And it was horrifying, but there's a lot worse things that happen. Kids get taken In the middle of the night, they're woken up, handcuffed. I was handcuffed. They handcuff you and throw you in a car. They don't tell you where you're going. They don't tell you when you're coming back. It's it's the same trauma as you're being kidnapped. And why they do that, I don't know. I guess they don't want kids to run if they find out that they're going to be taken away. But I just think that that's a horrifying thing to do to a child. And I think about these, you know, again, I was – 15 when this happened but i think about 11 year olds mm-hmm. and i just can't you well, know, look these, these are things that would be these are things that would be traumatic for an adult true right so the idea that that's even happening to children i mean those are the type of arrests where it's like okay if someone is like a mass murderer or a big big time gang leader or something and you need to come in kick down the door and, you know, swat them in the middle of the night or something. It's like, okay, fair enough. I get that. But if you're talking about a child, right. Or it's just someone it, it's, 
it blows my mind. It, it doesn't, it sounds like something that, you know, I, I think we often like to think that in our, in our modern countries and societies, things like this are not possible. This sounds like, oh, that must be happening in a foreign country, right? That can't be happening in America. Or mm -hmm. if that happened in America, surely that was like a hundred years ago and things like that don't, don't happen anymore. So I think that's why it's such a, it's such a weird and mind blowing concept. Tell me about the, tell me about coming out of the system. Tell me, tell me about the, the end of it. Um, it was, it was very weird. Like I was just so happy to get out and I was about to turn 18. So I moved in with a friend's family. God bless them. I had multiple friends whose parents took me in over the years and I finished my senior year of high school and they just took care of me, you know, yeah. like I didn't even feel out of place. They just took me in. They loved me. I had a great senior year. I graduated and took a year off and I ended up working at a summer camp that I had gone to when I was little and found Jesus. And, you know, my life was on a good path. I still struggled a lot. Um, I just struggled with depression and not even knowing that it was depression. Just, you know, I I just had trauma for the past few years. But, yeah. you know, I drank a lot. I never had like an alcohol issue, but like that's, I just like went into the party scene, whatever. And I had a hard time with relationships and things like that. Like you get this abandoned, these abandonment issues. Like I can't even explain. I mean, the people that are supposed to take care of you and love you allow you to be kidnapped and abused by strangers. And yeah. so I had a really hard time. Um, you know, I'd get into a relationship and I'd panic that they were going to leave. Something bad was going to happen and you can't function like that, you know. And even with friends, like I remember I'd have friends that like the second I thought that they – like it felt like everyone was out to get me, you know what I mean? So I had a really hard time just building deep bonds and um, it was very – I don't think anyone knew what I was going for and I hit it like no one knew that I had any issues because I always kept a job. I always was responsible, but I was definitely suffering in silence for a lot of years. And I don't know how anybody else gets through this because if I didn't have the faith that I do, mm -hmm. I'd be lost. But that to me surrounded me with some very great people who I could look up to and kind of learn how you're supposed to live and that, you know, maybe I didn't feel love from the places that I should have been able to, but I was able to understand God's love and, and just change from that. And there was a long time where I, it's weird. Like you get out of there and you block it out. Like I forgot that I was even in there. I didn't talk about it for years and it wasn't like I was ashamed or anything, but I literally didn't think about it for like, I'd say, you know, 10, 15 years. It wasn't until the past couple years that I started to really think about it and process it and actually work through it. 
And I hear that from people a lot that they just block it out. Yeah, I'd assume. I I don't know the deep psychology on this, but I would, my logical brain would assume that's some type of way of your body and mind trying to block something out to protect you, to enable you to be able to function, essentially. Otherwise, it's going to... If it, if it keeps popping back in your brain when you don't want it to, then it's going to be really hard to just get on with life. So I don't know. I don't know the psychological mechanism through which that happens, but I, I would assume, I think it's similar with people who have experienced very, you know, types of, you know, like real, real trauma, whether, you know, they've been to war or, you know, they've just experienced something really horrible in their childhood and their brain just shuts that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, on one hand, I'm like, I can't believe this happened to me. Like it was terrible. There was physical abuse, sexual abuse, all that stuff. But some of these places are just out of control. I mean, they, there was a facility and I know this happened at multiple facilities, but I was learning about one recently that their way of dealing with trauma, they would like make this stuff up, make up these ways of, I don't know if it's supposed to be therapy, but for example, girls that had been raped and had sexual trauma they would make them do rape reenactments to like yeah to like i I guess the idea behind it is you know exposure therapy where like if you're scared of heights climb a climb a ladder you know what i mean rung by rung and and they would do this stuff and just take it to the extreme and you know again you have these staff with no credentials or training running things so even when there is therapy, it's deranged. Mm. I, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this question, but do you know if this is a global phenomenon? Is this something that exists across the world and across the so-called developed world? Is this uh, I'm from the UK, of course, myself, and I'm not. This wasn't on my radar with the U.S., but I'm now wondering, whoa, is this like a whole underground industry in the U.K.? Is this happening in Canada? Is this happening across Europe? Is this, I don't know if you can answer that, but do you know the extent of this on a sort of global scale? I'm not, I'm not sure like if it's in every, every developed country, but I know yeah. that Australia, I believe the U.K., I know Canada, and I'm sure that there's more, but it is. I mean, even in what was I reading? Germany, the the cult, the Cyanon cult, mm-hmm. they still use that model there today for certain programs. So I'm sure it's in in Europe too. It's so weird. Tell me more about the work that you're doing now. So originally, right now, I'm I'm just I kind of supervise other therapists in a private practice setting. So I'm not, my hands aren't as deep into things as they were before, but I worked in, so I did a couple things. I tried to work at a facility that was like this, thinking that I could change it. I was young. I was in my early twenties. I was in school full time and I had good intention, but I went in there and like, for one one example, the supervisor was supposed to be there every day until 6 o'clock, and he would leave at 11 a.m. every day. And I would try to, you know, use my influence to make changes to certain rules and stuff like that. And with no one backing you and being a young kid, there was 
not really anything I could do, you know? So that particular place, thank God, because I worked there for about two months and I was like, this is deranged. Like I can't even be a part of this. They got shut down a couple years ago for, um, they had a child sex ring, I believe in one of the cabins, one of the boys cabins. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. It was all over the news and they finally shut it down and demolished every building. And I was like, thank God. So I tried to work in an actual facility like that, and it was just – you just couldn't do it. I, ha- I went to a I went to a staff party one night. It was like a get-together, my first week of training. Everyone was doing coke, and they were making jokes about how they slam kids on the ground. And I was just like, this is, this is horrifying. So <laughs> from there – I started working in a drug and alcohol rehab and I, for a while I worked in the youth building and it was kids that had criminal charges and were using drugs. That wasn't too bad. I mean, it was very structured. Some of the staff were terrible, but some of them were great, but they were, it was pretty safe. I didn't see any physical abuse or things like that. They weren't allowed to use restraints. Mm -hmm. And then from there I worked in, it was called family-based therapy and it's a wonderful program. And the whole idea behind it is to keep kids out of these facilities. So we're fighting against children and youth. We're fighting against um, even the parents sometimes. And we're going in and we're structuring the family to make changes so that the kids can be successful in their own home, in their own environment. So like if the parents need help with something, maybe it's financial, maybe it's therapy, things like that. We're driving them places. We're getting them set up with resources. And then we're doing intensive therapy two to three times a week in their home. And we're working with their schools and the communities and all sorts of things. And we're just kind of restructuring this kid's life for them to be successful. And it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal program that's, of course, underfunded, understaffed. And the wait list is years long and it's really hard to get into but Mm -hmm. i would say if there's any way that we could have a solution to actually help kids it would be this program so that's what i did for a few years and then from there um the unfortunate part and i think this is why this industry is just run the way that it is is mental health is not regarded as that important still to this day. I know we hear about it all the time. Mental health, mental health, it's so important. Just for example, I had a master's degree, which I had to go to school for seven years. I had to spend $100,000 to get my degrees. And I was making $12 an hour working at a facility. And so I couldn't support myself. So it was either stay and help because I knew I was one of the good ones. I was actually helping kids stay there or go and do something else that's not as intense and make more money. And obviously no one's in it for the money, but you can't support yourself working that way. And I mean, even insurance companies don't fund these sorts of things. And when they do, they're not paying a lot. Like you get paid more as a nurse, you know with a bachelor's degree than a mental health therapist with a master's degree or even a doctorate. Yeah. There's a lot of burnout. I I'll be honest. I think a lot of the conversation 
around quote unquote mental health in our current society is extraordinarily shallow and superficial. Yes, and some I agree. people don't like some people don't like it when I say that because then they think you're saying, oh, you know, Zuby doesn't care about mental. Health. And I'm like, no, I just think that it's a buzz. It's being used as like a buzz term, right? It's kind of trendy to talk about mental health in the most shallow way possible. It's trendy mm-hmm. to say, oh, you know, it's, it's trendy to even have claim you have an issue, even if you don't really. Right. Everyone suddenly has anxiety and depression and PTSD and yep. this and that. And I also don't like it when people do that because I'm like, well you're diluting these terms for people who have genuine, genuine problems, right? If, you know, you'll have a 16 year old who went through a relationship breakup and, you know, they're claiming they have PTSD and I'm like, well, that's, uh, that's just the human experience, right? You know, Mm -hmm. or someone's just sad and, you know, they call it depression. And I'm like, well, every time you, you're using this, you're, you're diluting these terms. And then people are like, oh, you're saying depression doesn't exist. And I'm like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if if we start using these terms so loosely and mm-hmm. just sticking to this very shallow level and not actually, I mean, th- this whole podcast, this whole conversation, all this stuff you're talking, I've never even heard this mentioned. I didn't even know this existed. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, if people want to be serious and talk about mental health, of course, like, let's go, let's go, let's go to the root firstly, right? Let's talk about, let's talk about family. Let's talk mm-hmm. about Let's talk about exercise and diet and nutrition and lifestyle. Let's really talk about the human condition and how we can deal with this. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about the importance of having a belief system, right? Let's talk about, I mean, this whole industry that you're telling me about. Let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, okay, where is the money going? You're telling me they're making $23 billion and they're running around slamming kids on their head and, the, and putting, <laughs> right? I mean... To me, it's just it, it's it's frustrating because I'm just like, well, if we're really going to address this, I'm not here saying, oh, no, don't address the issue. Right. Like address it. But let's do it properly. Right. I, I To be honest, I feel the same with so many different issues. I feel similar with the whole like conversation around policing. Right. It's kind of trendy to be, oh, all cops are bad. You know, do this, do that. Defund the police. Uh, and it's just like, well, do people just want to hold up signs and look like they're doing something kind of just putting in hashtags or whatever do you actually want to all right let's really look into what's going on here let's see you know are police being underpaid and undertrained it it looks like it to me as an outsider right or have you got the right people even with guns and badges maybe not like what's going on there like what's really the issue but i feel like there's so many things we we talk about and go through on like a very surface superficial level and it sort of makes people feel good and feel like they're doing something but then these things just carry on and they keep going and they keep going and more and more people get put through these, you know, grinders, including children. And then on the, and then on the other end, you get more and more people, you know, why, why are so many people ending up in prison? Right. Why are people, you know, we we talk about mass shooting. What what leads someone to do a mass shooting? Right. What leads someone, we talk about suicide again, very, very surface level, but what is it that is causing a young person or any person to think that, you know, life is so hopeless and they're lacking. There's, there's so little support. There's no hope whatsoever that the best option is to, to end their own life. I mean, that's like a big conversation. And I think we, we, we talk about it and are like, Oh, this thing's an issue, but it's like, okay, let's really talk about it then. Like, let's, let's, let's really think about this and let's bring, 
all the different angles, all the different perspectives, and let's just talk about it and not just get people jacked up in their emotions and trying to name call and all that. But it seems like every single thing very quickly devolves into it. And I think it makes it real difficult to solve some of these problems because it's hard to even talk about them. It's very hard to even just sit down and be like, okay, like what's actually, what's going on? What's your perspective? What's your experience? What do you think? What do you think? Let's just bring these ideas to the table, not demonize one another. I'd like to think that everybody, regardless of their social, cultural, political views would agree, okay, everything you've just described, something needs to be done about that. But the first yeah. thing is people need to know about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what you're saying is we've pathologized the human experience to where no one can just go through hard times anymore and work through it. Everything has to have a label. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have people walk into my office as a therapist and they're like, I think I have BPD and PTSD and this and this and this and this. I'm like, slow down. And they're like, I need medication, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, give me six weeks to work with you. I don't want to give you a diagnosis. I just want to talk to you. And nine times out of 10, they just need some restructuring to their life and they're okay. But they get in the wrong hands. And I see this all the time with my peers that I work with, especially with teenagers. They throw medication at them and they're not actually working on the root of the problem. And I think that America, you know, that's all my experience in America is that Everybody just wants a quick fix and they get put on medication and it doesn't change anything long term. In fact, it causes more problems. A lot of these school shootings, they're on antidepressants. I know for right. myself, I never had behavioral issues. Never, never, never had behavioral issues. I was always a little rebellious, but like never got in major trouble with the law or anything until I started struggling with my grades and I was sleeping all the time because I was a teenager. I was not depressed. I was a happy kid. They thought I was depressed and they put me on Paxil, which is now illegal to give to children because mm. it causes suicide. It causes aggression. It causes just a whole host of problems. It's illegal to give the kids. And wow. they had me, you're supposed to be on 20 milligrams as a grown man. And they had me on 60 milligrams, three times what is safe for an adult. No way. Because you can get these medications from your family doctor who's not a psychiatrist who doesn't understand how the brain works. Like the whole system is just completely flawed. I should have never been on any medication. I should have, I, I got tested for learning disabilities on my own when I was 21 years old and in college and I was able to get the college to like pay for it or whatever. And it turned out I had a processing disorder or something like that, that that's why I could never get a good math grade. And that's why I always struggled in foreign languages, which you have to take. And when you struggle in math, you struggle in science. And so once I got put in the right, like in college, I had some uh, like, you know, I got extra time to take tests and stuff. I got straight A's. Yeah, I mean, high school like that. And it was horrible. So like, there's just a whole a whole, you know, world out there that can help these kids. If people understood, you got to look at the root of the problem. Mm. But a lot of times therapy has become their new coping skills. Go talk to someone and have them buy into your BS and affirm everything that you say and not actually challenge you or help you. When someone walks in my office, like 
I'm challenging every area of their life because I want them to actually make changes. And that's yeah. just not not the norm, unfortunately. And I know some great therapists, so I don't want to act like the whole system is that way, but a lot of it is. And that's why, you know, when I see people say things like on Twitter, like therapy is so stupid, like don't ever go to therapy. I understand why they feel that way. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. I think that it's a wonderful thing if you find someone that knows what they're doing, but in the wrong hands, it can cause you more problems than it can help. Especially when your therapist is sending you straight to the psychiatrist to get put on medications and you don't actually need them. Like I think the idea of medication is to have it in combination with therapy. And what happens is people get on medication with no therapy. Mm -hmm. Like, And people get on medication who don't need it. And there's a massive profit incentive for that, especially in the USA. That's actually probably one of my biggest criticisms of the United States is the way that drugs, both legal and illegal, are handled and dealt with, I just think is a massive disaster. Everything from the opioids to the fentanyl to the antidepressants to the uppers and downers. And like just, yeah, the drug use in, in this country is just, it's insane to me. It's insane to me. And it's so far beyond... Um, what it's like even in other developing other other developed countries i mean i think with opioids i think i think the U, U, the us consumes over 90% of the global supply and the us is only 4% of the world's population mm-hmm. so you got 4% of the world's population having 90% of it and i'm just like that is bananas like that's that's such a big problem and then you know on a on a going up a level uh, just echoing some of the statements you said i think on so many things, human beings and our societies, we, we struggle with balance. That's something I'm really noticing these days is there's just an absence of balance. It's over, always overcorrecting one way or the other, right? Overcorrecting into, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to give you so much tough love that we're going to put you in restraints and we're going to kidnap you and we're going to slam you on the ground to we're going to coddle you so much yeah. that we're not going to challenge you at all. And, you know, you're just going to get your way with everything and whatever you are, whatever you believe, we're just going to affirm that and everyone be super gentle and, you know, words of violence and all that nonsense. Right. And it's just like, can we not just have a balance between genuinely caring and having compassion whilst also having tough love? But again, you know, maybe this is this is getting even deeper. Maybe this is the result of an imbalance between the sort of masculine and the feminine. Right. Where those two balancing forces, whether in children's lives or even in the lives of adults are just have just been out of whack now for multiple decades. And so people have lost track of how to balance these things out in a in a healthy way. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest thing that I always try to tell people is, you know, we talk about chemical imbalance all the time. And that's never even been a proven thing. It's a theory. If there is a chemical imbalance, why? In in my experience, it's hormones. And if you think your doctor check, checks your hormones ever, they don't. Unless you get a fantastic doctor or you go to a naturopath who sends you to the lab to get your hormones checked, it's so rare. And most people don't even think about it. Your hormones are off. I mean, I know for myself, I was not sleeping for 
you know, I just couldn't fall asleep and I was like real anxious and it wasn't like mental anxiety. It was like physical. I'm like, what's going on? Got my hormones checked. My cortisol levels were high. I did certain things to rebalance them and I was completely fine. If I would have walked into a psychiatrist's office, I would have left there with a prescription for Xanax. Yep. You know, we're just so uneducated on how to actually take care of our bodies. And even when trauma is involved, you have trauma, you're left, you're, you know, fight or flight, cortisol again, all these different chemical reactions that you're having can be solved through learning to take care of yourselves, which we are not taught. And I'm not going to ever say that it's just, oh, you just need to eat right. You just need to sleep right. It's not that simple. You need to get to the root of your problem psychologically as well, but that's going to help. If you're sleeping at night, it's going to help you feel a little more emotionally stable, you know? It's not profitable though. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Monica, before we close out, is there anything that you want to say or share that you think people need to know? Um, I guess just, you know, two different things. I'd say... One, I think one thing I didn't really talk about that I think is important to understand is every single kid in these facilities are going to be put on medication, um, high doses of them. I'm not sure if you're familiar with lithium, yes. but I was forced to be on lithium as a child and they would test my blood to check the levels and every single time it came back as an untherapeutic level. And then they would keep me at the same dose. And this is what is happening to these kids is they're literally being drugged. And it's so it, – the long-term effects, I mean, I had like kidney issues, all this. I'm, I'm good now. I've learned to take care of myself. But a lot of these kids are leaving there with medical issues. Not only that, um, they use tranquilizers on kids. They tie them down and – you know, inject them with things to make them pass out. So, you know, I know I talked a little bit about the abuse, but I just really want people to know, like, it's, it's extreme. It's mm -hmm. terrible. Um, and the medical neglect, I remember one time I hit my head on the wall at, when I was at the juvenile detention center and I got a, I know I had a concussion. I blacked out, woke up in a different room and they said, you're faking it. Another time I was throwing up every morning. I, Found out later it was because they had put me on a medication and taken me off cold turkey. And they didn't know enough about that particular medication at the time. They thought that I was bulimic, which I was not. So I was forced to sleep outside on the floor in the fluorescent lights at night because I was on suicide watch. So, like, I could go on forever about the crazy things that happened. But, like, I just, you know, if at any point if I downplayed how bad it was, I mean, it was... It, these kids are going through a lot. And then the second thing I want to say, I, I think it's important to talk about the solutions of what do we do? What do we do with these kids? Because you do have kids that they need help, you know, whether it's behavioral, mental health, whatever it is. And I think a few things that need to happen are that family-based therapy I was talking about. I think we need to put our funds into that. If we have $23 billion dollars, out there to just give these places to ship kids there why can't we put that into these communities better pay for therapists more programs i mean i know the place i live in the pittsburgh area and there's probably maybe like seven 
different places that do it. Probably I could maybe like a couple hundred kids that get help when there's 200,000 kids in America that need this help. So I think that we could, you know, do things like family-based therapy because it is a family issue. If you have a, if you take a drug addict, the model for most rehabs is it's a family issue. If you take a kid with, or an adult with an eating disorder, family issue, they work with the family. They have intense family therapy to get this person help. That's how it needs to be a hundred percent of the time with kids. The kid should not just be going to therapy. Every time we get a kid come to my practice where I work for therapy, we try and get parents help as well. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent, but a lot of people just don't know how to take care of teenagers and that's okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of, but I think that there just really needs to be some restructuring. And I think that there is such a thing as parenting classes when people lose custody, stuff like that, but it's very rare that hear it happening with teenagers. So I think that parenting classes need to be more of a mandatory thing for parents that are not able to take care of their kids. So I just think that, you know, oh, another thing is training. I mean, Again, I, I was able to get a master's degree without learning about trauma. If I did, it was probably like 10 minutes. There should be an entire, at least an entire class on trauma. You should have to have a certification to work with it because you can more do more damage to somebody if you don't have trauma. I mean, if you've ever watched Dr. Phil, you'll see like half the time he's re-traumatizing people from the stuff he's mm. saying. And especially when kids are involved, I'm not sure if you know, bad baby, but he sent her to the rapper. He sent her oh, to a facility bad, like bad Bobby, bad Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She actually has YouTube videos talking about what happened to oh, her really? at these facilities, you know, <laughs> but like, wow. yeah, it's just, I, I think it all comes down to, we need, like you were talking about with police officers. It's not that, People are necessarily bad. They're not trained. They don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think that the whole system just needs redone. And and I think if we can put a focus on teenagers, we're going to prevent there being so many adults in and out of prisons and stuff like that if we get the kids the help that they need. 100%. 100%. Um, We need more focus on family and children in both of our countries, all of our societies. I don't even know how people pretend that that is not such a huge issue maybe because it makes people feel uncomfortable but that's just the that's the reality of it that's where it starts and Mm -hmm. so if we're gonna invest and try to nip certain problems in the bud then i think as a as a collective society and and it's hard it's it's difficult because people like a solution where a politician can just uh you know pass a policy or wave a wand but i think it's hard because people know that you know, you can only do what you can do as an as an individual, um, and you can encourage people in certain directions, and you can promote good ideas over bad ideas. But you know, in a in a free and in a free society, people also have the uh, the choice to make bad decisions. But the biggest shame is when those decisions then have a downstream impact on children, especially, and also on and then wider society as a whole, because that's kids are the future literally yep. so um it's a complicated one but monica uh you know massive respect for 
the work you're doing. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I'm happy to hear about your resilience. Um, I didn't know so much about you. Of course, I've followed you on Twitter for a while, but I didn't know, uh, you know, the depth of this story. So I appreciate you sharing it. And I hope people can really take something away from this. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you just even giving me this opportunity to be able to shed some light on this topic. No doubt. Uh, where can people find and follow you online if they want to learn more? Um, they can find me on TikTok. I'm trying to make more TikToks. Uh, it's at, <laughs> at Harmonica Ice and on Twitter at, at Take Heart Monica. Take Heart Monica. To yeah. follow her on Twitter. I can't promote TikTok, but um, <laughs> follow I mean, Monica who can, on you know? Twitter. <laughs> I'm trying to start my comedy career on TikTok. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no doubt. Monica, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me, destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.